Well, in the wonderful world of social media, uh, I'm sure some of you have heard of these people called influencers. And you know them because they're often telling you, in one way or another, how to live the good and ordered life. How to have a good and ordered home. How to have good and ordered and fulfilling relationships. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, these are people who are paid to spend their days doing nothing but posting things on the internet of their glorious and perfect lives. So you'll see these people posting photos of their houses, you know, a picture of their living room with white walls and pastel coloured furniture with those cushions with the frills on the edges, or photos of their delicious pasta a la carbonara from the night before where they've perfectly aligned the knife and fork and got that buka effect with the blurry background. You'll see photos of their immaculately groomed children with perfectly straight, brilliant white teeth, always smiling, always having a great time. And as much as we see these influences and we scoff and laugh at some of these things, especially for those of us who think they're out of touch with reality, who have crying kids all the time and messy houses and last week's leftovers for dinner, I'd hazard a guess that deep down when we see what these people post, we kind of long for this sort of life. We long for this kind of order and goodness and fulfilment in our lives and in our homes and even in our relationships. Well, as we turn to Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9 uh, this evening, we'll see there is actually an answer to this longing we'll see that there is an order that God has created for Christian relationships that is good, that is right, that is fulfilling. An order that does all the things that these social media influencers promise us, only, I would say, even better. And so I want to appeal straight off the bat, if the reading did seem a little bit uncomfortable, uh, firstly, perhaps feel sorry for the guy at the front that has to (laughs) deliver the message. It's a joke. In all seriousness, if you did feel uncomfortable, remember, this is the Word of God we're dealing with. And it is good. It is right. It says the things we need to hear. So don't be quick to to dismiss it. Uh, Rather, we need to ask for God's help in understanding it. Secondly, I think when, by God's grace, we do understand what's being said here, the proper context in which these relationships are described, uh, we'll be encouraged. I really think we'll be nourished by this and we'll see how good they truly are. But in order to get there, uh, to see how God's plans for relationships work, how about I pray and then we'll dive straight into point one. Father, please speak to us this evening, wherever we are at. Lord, please do this with the power of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rightio, first point. Uh, We worship a God of order and this is good. So the first thing we need to understand uh, this passage tonight is to understand something of the nature of God himself. To get why relationships are good, we need to see that our God is also good and our God is also a God of order. So to make this point, we're very briefly going to look into three biblical categories, looking at creation, the church, and the Trinity. And if you're thinking, oh, gee, this is going to be a six-hour sermon Rest assured, we're going to go through these very, very quickly because the main point I want us to get is that God is ordered, and I'm going to show you very quickly from the Scriptures. So firstly, creation. Uh, In creation, we see God creates order out of chaos. Genesis 1-2. He gave everything roles and functions. 
He gathered water into one place to create dry ground. He then enabled this dry ground to bring forth plants and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, each according to its kind. So every plant had its own order. Everything had its place. He created the stars to govern times and days and years, and he created the animals to multiply according to their kinds. Everything in creation had an order. And then finally, he created humanity and gave us authority over creation. So not only was there order, but there were authority structures put in place from as early as creation. And God concludes after all this that all that he had made was very good in Genesis 1.31. We worship a God of order, and this is good. Uh, The second place we see God's order is in the way he structures the church and the way it should ideally run. And we see this most evident in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, or I should probably say we see this completely backwards in the first letter of Corinthians, where there is disorder and chaos. Uh, If you're not familiar, the Corinthian church had all kinds of issues, uh, and it makes receivership and our own issues here at church look like child's play compared to these guys. So think of issues of overt sexual immorality within the church. Uh, The misuse of spiritual gifts. Picture a service where everyone's just shouting and yelling over the top of one another all at the same time. Uh, Imagine us doing the Lord's Supper like we did last week, only people are pushing and shoving each other out of the way to come and pig out on the Lord's Supper. That's the way this church ran. And so in 1 Corinthians 14.33... Paul rebukes this church very sharply and he says, our God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And so here in 1 Corinthians, Paul appeals to the very nature of God himself as the basis for the way we relate relate to one another in church. We worship a God of order and this is good. And the final tent peg I want to lay down is the Trinity. And we're going to do this very quickly uh, using one verse, because in a nutshell, what I want us to see is that the Trinity is three persons who are equally God, but not equal in function or even authority. Jesus himself said, I, I do not speak of my own authority, but only what the Father tells me. If we pull up John fourteen twenty six, we see... The roles of these functions in one verse all laid out for us. Jesus speaks about the Father sending the Spirit. So the Father sends the Spirit. It doesn't come on its own. Uh, The Spirit's job is then to remind the disciples of everything Jesus had taught them. They all have their roles, all three persons of the Godhead. They all function in this kind of dance happening between all three persons where they work together to the same ends. Yes, they are equally God, but they all have differing roles and functions. And this is just another way of saying we worship a God of order, and this is good. Now, that was a crash course in three major biblical doctrines. Feel free to go and look at them in your own time. Uh, But all I want us to get out of this is that we worship a God of order, and you should be able to see that the Bible is full of this stuff by now. So all we want to do as we move forward is know that that our God orders everything, and that includes what we read in tonight, our relationships, our household Christian relationships. They ultimately have their roots in God. 
And so what we have before us in Ephesians, in this passage tonight, is a description of these roles and functions, a description of these relationships that, like creation, like the church and even God himself, have a divine order to them. They're structured in a way that is good. They're structured in a way that is dignifying and representative of God himself and are amazingly, I would say, amazingly good and liberating when we understand them properly. And so that being said, let's move on to point two. Uh, We worship a God of order. This is good. Therefore, our relationships should be ordered too. Now, I don't know about you guys, but every now and then I mishear lyrics of famous songs. I particularly used to do this a lot as a kid. Uh, One of the ones that gave me a double take uh, was Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. Hopefully most of you know this one. I once thought the lyrics to the chorus said, it doesn't make a difference if we're naked or not. (laughs) Legit, that's that's what I heard. That's that's a tame one. (laughs) Amazingly... (laughs) Stop heckling from the back. Order. We all know the lyric is, it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. And the reason I bring this up is because when you mishear something as simple as one word, it changes everything about the context. We suddenly mishear it and we think, did they really just say that? And the reason I bring this up is because in tonight's passage, when we hear words like submit or slaves, we misunderstand potentially what's being said, not because we mishear the words, but we mishear the context of what's being said. And the reason for this is because in Australia, we live in a very different context to the era they lived back then. And so when we hear things like submit, we apply all these negative connotations to it when really there shouldn't be. We live in this extremely progressive cultural environment Uh, an environment saturated uh, in things like sitcoms that laugh and mock at marriage, that that marriage partners in any kind of TV show, they're always seen as the weird ones, the odd ones, the stupid ones. The same applies for for husbands and fathers. Uh, They're seen as nothing more than big idiots on the screen, people that that don't know anything, big oafs, kind of like the Homer Simpson style. In fact, one of the things that I think makes Ephesians 5 so interestingly offensive to our modern ears is that these days it affirms the complementary nature of men and women, husbands and wives, in a world where, like the modern West, any form of gender inequity is seen as something that needs to be squashed out and destroyed. There's no more room for cherishing our differences in this world, no room to cherish the complementary strengths which God lovingly gave us in our genders. And so a passage like this one can sometimes get thrown out with the bathwater. But I'm hoping that we'll see by the end of this evening that the gospel actually champions these differences. And in fact, we'll see that if we go one step further, that it puts fresh obligations on the authoritative um, party in these groups, right? The, The husbands, the fathers, and the masters, commanding them to love and serve them, the people that sit underneath their authority, to complement them rather than to dominate over the top of them. And so 
one of the passage breakups, uh, we, we gather in verse 21. If you have your Bibles there, some, some of your Bibles will break it up differently and put verse 21 in the previous section, but I think it actually belongs into this section here. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I think this is the backbone of everything we're about to see uh, for following on from this. So if we keep this idea in the back of our minds, I think it'll help us understand why there are these heavier obligations on the authoritative party in each of these examples that Paul gives. So what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through these in reverse order. So we're going to start with the slaves and masters in 6 verse 5 onwards. So Paul begins, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Now, we don't have a slave culture these days, which is one of the reasons this can be a bit jarring. I think the best way to see it is in terms of employer-employee style relationships. It's not a perfect example, but I think it's the closest thing we've got. And some of you who are employees would probably consider yourselves a slave anyway. In the first century, though, there were household slaves, even in Christian homes. Uh, one of the, the books I read with Jack earlier this week, dare I say it's a book, it's more of a paragraph, is a letter in the New Testament to a guy called Philemon, who was a Christian slave owner. So there were Christian slave owners uh, in the first century. And Paul writes to the slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. And most slave owners, when they read this, I suspect they would have been thinking, yes, you're absolutely right, Paul, preach it. But then he goes on, highlighting the responsibility of the master, the stronger party, the more authoritative party, saying, but masters, treat your slaves in the same way. The implication in this, I think, being treat them in the same way you treat yourself. It sort of has this illusion of of Jesus' second great commandment to love your neighbour as yourself. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favouritism with him. So the master is to be fair. He is to treat his slave like he would treat himself because Jesus is ultimately the master of both of them. They are both under authority. As we work our way back, uh, we see the parent-child relationship brought up from chapter 6, verse 1. And here again, uh, we see something that may have been just a given. Children, obey your parents. This seems pretty straightforward. You know, honour your father and mother. The, The commandment is brought up in today's passage. Do what they say. But, Paul goes on, fathers... Do not exasperate your children, Paul says. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Literally, do not exasperate means do not make them angry, right? Do not push them to the edge. There's a sense in which Paul's saying here that that gospel-shaped parenting requires us to recognize that the child's feelings do actually matter in the Christian household, where to consider how our children feel and not exasperate them. We're not to make unreasonable demands against our children and push them to the edge, you know, to crush their creativity and their ideas and tell them they need to sit silently in the corner. 
Rather, we're called to nourish them in verse 4. Literally, where where the NIV says to bring them up, the the word means to nourish them, to keep them warm, right? To, To grow them. And how do we do this? Well, Paul says we do this in the training and instruction of the Lord, which basically means bring up your children as little disciples of the Lord Jesus. So any uh, fathers in this room, uh, anyone who's going to be a father or who knows a father or anything like that, consider this, that fathers should be praying for their kids. Not just mums, dads. Dads should be reading the Bible with them, teaching their kids about who God is and modelling to them what it means to live under grace. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And finally, as we work our way back, uh, we come to the one that everyone has been waiting for, wives and husbands. Starting at verse 22, we read, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, in the modern world, this is often where we come unstuck, and I've seen this weaponized against Christians by people in the past. It's often where people have issues with Paul and, and ultimately with God's word, because as we've talked about, it sounds so out of touch with our Australian egalitarian culture. Right, where we're not just equal in status, but we must be equal in function as well, equal in every single way across the board. And so to begin with, I think the best path forward is actually not to get bogged down in the requirements of the wife, uh, but first, let's actually have a look at what Paul says about the demands of the husband. So we're going to skip over verses 22 to 24. We will come back to those. But come with me to verse 25. In verse 25, we're told that the husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Going down to 28, husbands are to love their wife as their own body, which they feed and take care of. That word feed there is the same word uh, as nourish, right? When you say to bring up your children, to feed your body, it's the same word Paul uses. It means to nourish, to grow, to keep warm. And so if someone, put it this way, if someone were to come up behind you and just give you a big shove in the back, when you're falling towards the ground, are you just going to have your hands by your side and just let the ground take care of you? We can test this later on if you like. I suspect not. Right? I suspect if you are falling down, if there are objects in the way or the floor is coming at you, what are you going to do? You're going to throw out your hands. You're going to brace yourselves for impact. You want to protect your body. You want to protect your head in any way that you can. You care for your body. In fact, you care so much that you probably put a sign on a trolley that says, wear a hard hat next time. <laughs> Paul says, if you're married... You need to consider your wife as if she was your own body, protecting her, nourishing her, giving yourself up for her, just as Christ did for the church. And we all know what Christ did for the church. 
When we understand this, when, when we live this out properly, it'll hopefully make the context of submission much, much easier for us to understand. In other words, the wife is submitting to a husband that has her best interests at heart instead of his own. She's submitting herself to a husband who will champion her, who will nourish her and love her sacrificially just as Christ loved the church. And that's really it. In fact, this is the the core of the whole passage. If you look down to verse 32, Paul talks about this, this profound mystery when he talks about marriage, and he says this is the mystery as, as a reflection of Christ and the church. When we see what Christ did for the church and what the church does then, which is all of us here today, what the church does in submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ, that's the model Paul is using to explore and explain what Christian marriage looks like. Just as the church places herself under the authority of Christ, who gave himself up for her, so also the wife places herself under the authority of her husband, who should love her in the same way. A husband will defend her in public, who will champion her, who will present his wife as a crowning jewel, washing her with the word, just as Christ does with the church. And this is an amazing picture of marriage. It's a dignifying picture of marriage. It's so countercultural in so many ways and yet so good, especially when compared with today's society's belittlement of marriage. Now, if you're still not convinced, I'm going to bring up one more thing with this word submit. I want to highlight um, one, perhaps two more things from this. First, if you have your NIV and a lot of other translations, the King James does this as well, uh, you'll notice that it doesn't say, wives, submit to your own husbands. It actually says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And this is the translator's attempt at getting across something that's hard to get in English. It is there, though. The word in its original context, it it carries the idea that you are choosing to place yourself under authority. You willingly do this. And this is why it says, submit yourselves to your own husband. It doesn't just command, be submissive, just do it. More than this, uh, verse 22, it, it uses the word submit, but it doesn't use the word obey that you see with children. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your master. Wives, doesn't use the word. Willingly place yourself under the authority of your husband. The reason it asks this is because it expects the husband to do all the stuff in that big chunk we'd read out, to sacrificially, self-denying, protect, love, nourish, cherish, nurture the wife, just as Christ does for us all here as the church. If you've ever seen a marriage modelled this way, I think you'd realise how refreshing it is Uh, in God's plan for marriage. So I want to recap very quickly. First, we have a God of order, and this is good. Secondly, our relationships then follow in that step that they should be ordered to, and we see that in today's passage. Finally, what does this actually look like? So I came back from Taiwan at one point, and I brought back with me uh, a bunch of knockoff branded gear, Right, fake Armani belts, 
uh, fake Gucci handbags, things like that for friends and family. The thing is, it's not hard to tell that they're fake, uh, especially because they only last about five minutes before they break. But I think sometimes when we look at Christian marriage, we look at Christian parenting and other relationships, knowing how they should look like, it can be easy for us to go, well, mine doesn't really look like this. You know, my marriage or my, my fatherhood seems like a cheap knockoff of the real thing painted here in Ephesians 5. And so the question is, what, what do we do? How do we make sense of that? Well, first of all, we must remember that we aren't Jesus. Right? We ourselves aren't perfect. We are stained by sin. We will struggle. We will fail to get things right on many occasions. All relationships, pretty much from Adam and Eve all the way up to us, have had troubles because of sin. Life can be hard and incredibly messy. But I think the the relieving thing of this is that Paul knows this because he finishes off his letter to the Ephesians by drawing our attention to this battle that we all face in chapter 6 where we need to put on the full armour of God. He knows this is going to be something that we will have to wrestle with. So being a Christian doesn't mean that we live perfect lives or that we won't stuff things up. That's simply part of the curse of living in a fallen world. However, we've also seen in Ephesians that our identity is secure with Christ. We're seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Chapters 1 to 3 establishes that we're saved by grace and we are secured. And in light of this, from chapter 4 onwards, we see the Christian walk, where we're to put off the old self and put on the new. We are to live lives in a manner worthy of our calling. And so my encouragement to you is if you know your identity in Christ, is to do everything in the strength that he provides to champion the varying relationships you have in your life. Champion your spouse, your kids, your colleagues, your employees. To champion even one another sitting here today. In fact, I want to argue that like the social media influencers who promote the perfect life, I think that's fake. It's all, all fake. I want to argue here as Christians, we have a secret weapon that makes this real, that makes our longings for good, right, and fulfilling relationships possible. And it's found here in that key verse I brought up earlier, Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, Paul puts it in Philippians in, in different terms that I think is even clearer. He says, in humility... Consider one another's as more significant than yourself. So as we wrap up, I want us to consider how we can better champion one another this week, how we can raise one another up to lovingly submit to one another, to consider how the unique and divinely ordained roles and functions which God has given you, whether you are a wife or a husband or a child or a parent or a Christian employee or employer, to consider how you can submit to the authority of God's word and the people that God has placed in your life, honouring God in the way that he asks you to live with one another, loving and serving one another out of reverence for Christ. So as we consider this, why don't I pray and we lift these up to God and we can talk about this more after the service. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that he gave himself up for the church to present us as holy and blameless. Lord, we pray for all the Christian homes represented here in KPC. Uh, Help them to be beacons of light to the world as they model a reverence for Christ, which is so countercultural in today's world. Lord, I pray that you would help us at church to champion our marriages and the parents in our congregation, to encourage those who are going through rough spots or other difficulties. Lord, help us to have the courage to seek your wisdom in all areas of life. Help us to love those who are under our authority and to lovingly serve those who have authority over us. And help us to see the glorious riches found in these gospel-centered relationships. We ask for this, all this for Christ's sake. Amen.